Alright, verse 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now Paul loved Corinth with a father love. Loved Corinth as though that church were a daughter of his that of course he betrothed, he handed over. And note he says this, I betrothed you to one husband. Just one. Not multiple mates or a plethora of partners. I betrothed you to one husband. I read over that. It caught my eye again today in passing. And I remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, little g, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, little g, and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we through Him. One husband. Again, we see Scripture clear. There are not many aisles to the altar. There are not many roads to that final destination. There is one. There is but one. One husband and Jesus Christ. Now, in this section of the letter, Paul suddenly turns from father to fool. From father to fool, as 2 Corinthians 11 and 12 have been called the fool's speech. And rightly so. It comes in three waves. We will probably not get through all of it tonight. In fact, I guarantee we won't. But in three waves, if you just want to kind of tuck this in the back of your mind, there's the prologue in which he justifies giving the fool's speech. It's about the first 20 verses of chapter 11. Then secondly is the fool speech proper, the actual speech itself, which runs from about 11.21 through 12.10. And then finally he gives an epilogue where he justifies the speech he's just given. Okay, and that is chapter 12, verses 11 through 18. Prologue, fool speech, epilogue, and the whole thing is contained in chapters 11 and 12. And Paul, again, is the obvious speaker here, the doting dad turned foolish father, And he's foolish in defense of the gospel. He's willing to play the fool. If that's what it takes, he's willing to look the fool. If that's what it takes. Long time ago, I realized that if I could use everything that I was, even my foolishness in the service of the gospel, that was a good thing. That sometimes it is okay to look a little foolish, a little strange, a little silly, a little out of the norm if it's going to show the gospel more clearly. And in our, as Rachel was talking about, simple devotion to Jesus, we need not fear being foolish. My kids are foolish all the time. And I love them for it. They crack me up. They do foolish, silly things. They're my kids. They bring me great joy. Someone else might look at them from time to time and go, what is going on in that family? And I say, have you seen the dailies? (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I just... No. (laughs) Are we willing to be even foolish for the gospel? Well, Paul is going to be here, and it's wonderful to watch and to understand. But what he's doing here is brilliant. 
The recipients, though we know he's the speaker, he's the one bringing this speech, the recipients are in some ways more subtle because clearly the Corinthians are the direct receivers of the letter. But the opponents of Paul would hear it too. They are also recipients. Paul never speaks to them directly in this fool's speech, but he refers to them many times. And we see there is a contrast going on. As Paul is calling himself foolish, what he's really doing is calling out their foolishness. And both are taking place. And it's truly an ingenious uh, section in the Scripture. Obviously, Spirit-inspired, using the willing foolishness of Paul. Because in reality, these super-apostles, as we've called them, are the real fools. Verse 4, he continues and says, For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. He says, I consider myself, verse 5, not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. I told you last week, that is the Huperleon Apostolon. The eminent apostles, the Huperleon Apostolon, the super apostles, or you could call them the hyper apostles. Huperleon means that. Hyper, extended, expansive, self-righteous, arrogant. These guys are coming in calling themselves apostles, but they are not just smug and superior. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're not just arrogant, they are dangerous. And Paul is fully aware of that and dealing with them directly. They are preaching another Jesus. And if there is only one husband, and if there is only one way, one truth, one life, one route to the Father, and you preach another way, guess what that is? It is a dead end. These hyper-apostles, these super-apostles are a dead end. And they are the fools. They're preaching a different spirit. That is, what's behind them. These men in the flesh are not the real problem. Remember, our fight is not with flesh and blood. It's the spirit that came with them. The spirit of religion. A spirit of heaviness. And they are preaching a different gospel, which as Paul will say in Galatians, is really not a gospel at all. There's nothing good about this different gospel. There's only one good gospel. And so Paul now begins to debunk and expose these super apostles. And with this speech, I want to give you the visual, he tears the big red S off their chest to divest them of any credibility. They are no longer super by the time he's through with them. And yet he does it ironically by playing the fool himself. Verse 6 he says, But even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. It is hard to imagine Paul unskilled in speech. Unskilled. Idiotus. In the Greek. Even if I talk like an idiot, I am not. I am not so in knowledge, he says. And you know this. Remember his first visit to Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. He said, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority. Hyper, that hyperleon. I did not come with hyperleon of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. 
I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, that's a contrast even to these super apostles. I didn't come that way. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And you know, there are times when the elegant turn of a phrase gets in the way of simple devotion. There are times when, when the words distract from the simplicity and the purity to Christ. And I confess to you, I struggle with that because being the son of an English teacher, I love the turn of a phrase. I love good literature. I love poetry and song and lyrics and, and how words fit together and play off each other. I'm really drawn to that kind of thing. And, and sometimes I know it comes out in my teaching. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm any brilliant speaker. But I'm saying that I struggle as I study with sometimes having to wipe the page clean of all these little buzz phrases and and points and words and everything else. And I beg of you, as we study the Word of God, to hone in on the Word of God. And let all the foolish words of Pastor Rick fall to the side. Because they can get in the way. If you find yourself lost as I'm speaking, it's probably because I'm off on some... You know, my teacher in college used to call it waxing an elephant, you know. And I'm over here waxing away, you know, and and just get back to the Word. Wait, I'll come back, you know. But you listen to the Word of God. What we need is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's it. That is our message. It's a message, by the way, that we can all proclaim. You don't have to have a degree from some seminary somewhere. You don't have to be studied in depth in all the scriptures, though we are called, all of us, to study to show ourselves approved. You don't need to. You have the simple message of the gospel. We're all given that message. They just tell someone Jesus loves you today. Maybe the very message they need to hear, and all we need is that, that simplicity, that purity of devotion, and, and, listen, the demonstration of the Spirit with power. And that is not something that a man or a woman can generate. It's what God does when He recognizes we are just devoted to Him. That the attitude really is not about me. It's about just bringing the Word. It's about sharing that Gospel message. Well, think about this. Paul says, you know, I'm not. Even if I'm unskilled in speech, not so in knowledge, we've made this evident to you. And as he talks about this, I wonder, what does it look like? He said, we came to you in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Back in 1 Corinthians 2. What exactly does that look like? And the answer is simple. Looks like Jesus. Spirit and power. Who more than Jesus walked with the Spirit of God? God among us. God with us. Emmanuel. And who had more power in history than Jesus? He walked in the Spirit and power. And Isaiah prophesied this of Him. I hope this is becoming a familiar verse with many of you. Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's what Jesus looked like. 
That's what it means to come in the Spirit and in power. And remember how Paul described him with the very same word Jesus used of himself, meekness. Spirit and power in meekness. Which seems completely contradictory to the way we think. If you come in power, you don't come meek. You come loud and riding in on a mighty chariot, ready to do battle. And Jesus came meekly. And yet, in power. 2 Corinthians 10.1, Paul said, I myself urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And so, my point is this. That's how the fool arrived at Corinth. Coming, ironically, from that bastion of wisdom and knowledge and clever speech, Athens, making his way down to Corinth. And I told you back when we studied these things, I believe that journey down to Corinth was life-changing for Paul when he realized all he needed was one message. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And beyond that, it's a lot of foolishness. So Paul came to Corinth in meekness, the meekness of Christ, with the message of Christ and Him crucified. He did not come like so many peddling philosophers of the day. Charging in mission. Read on, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Did, did I make a mistake there? Should I have charged you something? <laughs> verse 8. I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren, that's uh, Silas, Silas. That's my grandson's name. (laughs) Silas and and Timotheus, they came down from Macedonia. He said they fully supplied my need. And in everything, I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in the regions of Achaia, that is uh, Greece and and especially down in Corinth and uh, that region. He says, why? (laughs) Because I do not love you? God knows I do. Paul came to Corinth, and I'm going to break this up into four parts tonight. So here's part one, the free admission of humility. The free admission of humility. Humble, having been humbled in Athens, his eloquence not going anywhere, now he comes with a simple message and he charges nothing, and that's important. I told you before, in the Greco-Roman world, Philosophers and great teachers always received pay for their preaching and it legitimized their preaching. If someone came into town and began to give lectures, they expected to be well paid for it. And it, again, legitimized their teaching in the eyes of the populace. Paul took nothing when he came to Corinth. He wouldn't let them pay him. In fact, you may recall what he first did when he arrived in the town. He set up his tent-making shop. He he met up with a couple of fellow Jewish tent makers, a man by the name of Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who Paul would later affectionately refer to as Prisca. They became dear friends of Paul. He probably converted them there in Corinth, although I don't know for sure. They possibly could have been believers before. But there they began working on their tents together and sewing and selling. and, And Paul was making money during the day, tent making, so that in the evenings and on Shabbat, He could teach the Word. And that's how he was spending his time 
Acts chapter 18 verse 4 says he was reasoning in the synagogue every Shabbat and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy, see I'm never going to say Silas without smiling again. I want you all to know. When Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word. Solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now that's interesting to me. They arrive and suddenly, people like to talk about tent making ministry. And there is definitely a place for it and a value to it. Do you know what I mean by tent making ministry? That you get another job and then you do your ministry. And you do the other job to support the ministry. And a lot of churches are planted this this way. This one wasn't. I, I, I know it was by the grace of God. I was about to say I don't know how. But by God's grace, we started this church and I was full time from day one. I don't know how that worked, except again, by the grace of God. But I was not called with the bridge to tent-making ministry. And it wasn't because I wasn't willing to do it. I can flip burgers with the best of them. But some ministries are tent-making ministries. Get a job, start a church. Others, it's different. We see both in Paul, and I find that interesting. When he first arrived at Corinth, it was tent-making ministry. But as soon as Timothy and Silas... As soon as they arrived there in Corinth, Paul stops working completely. Why? Because now he is getting, note this, his wages, verse 8, from the Macedonian churches. He's getting paid. He has a salary now. Not from Corinth, because Paul is not about to take a silver drachma from Corinth. But he is being paid full-time for his ministry as he was there in Corinth. And it makes me kind of wonder if pastors should ever take a salary. Well, go back and read what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's pretty clear that that is approved by the Lord and, and of the Lord. And I'm not trying to, you know... I mean, it's the end of the year, so pay decisions are being made. I'm not trying to do anything about that. No. Sorry, I'm in a weird mood tonight. But um, why wouldn't Paul take pay from Corinth? I mean, whether it was personal tent making or support from other churches, he was covered, but he would not take money from any of the Corinthians. Why not? Especially if it would have legitimized his ministry. Remember, Paul came meekly. And he came with the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the message they desperately needed in Corinth, as well as throughout all of Asia, was the message of grace. And grace doesn't cost anything. Except Jesus. It costs Jesus everything, but it does not cost you. Listen, Paul said in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so at Corinth, while he never charged him, he did receive wages and he did his tent making, but he didn't take money from them because he's trying to teach them the free gift of God's grace. So Paul was both self and others supported, preaching grace all the while. If you're further curious about supporting Uh, Someone in full-time ministry, be it missionaries or pastors or anyone else, remember that Jesus and the Twelve were supported full-time. He had, following Him, Luke records Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the servant of Herod's household, which I think is wonderful. 
And uh, oh, Susanna, she was in on that too. And with these women, many others, Luke 8, 3 says, were contributing to their support out of their private means. So here's the issue. It's whether such support helps or hinders the gospel. And as Paul came into Corinth, support, financial support from Corinth, he felt would have hindered the simple message of the gospel of grace so he wouldn't take it. And now he's actually having to defend that before them, saying, look, I didn't take anything from you, and then you turn around and say I'm illegitimate as a, as a teacher because I didn't, wasn't paid by you. Look, I wasn't going to. And again in verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be stopped in all the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you. God knows I love you. And so he comes in the free admission of humility, not charging because he wants them to know grace out of love for them. Now, however, he turns his attention to, number two, the facade of righteousness. The facade of righteousness, verse 12 But what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. Now that's a good Pauline sentence. It's one of those that you would read and go, next. (laughs) And he is very simply saying, I am going to continue in this integrity specifically of not taking anything from Corinth personally, so as to cut off those who are. That is the false teachers. Because these super apostles are taking a wage, apparently. And Paul is drawing a very clear distinction between a true apostle and a false one. And he says, I'm not going to be that way. Verse 13, for such men are, watch this, false apostles deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Wow! He has not directly spoken now to the super apostles, but he is talking about them. And he is making it clear to Corinth, as well as to those hyper apostles, what the truth really is here. And these are profoundly intense words. Often, these two verses, 14 and 15, are used together to quote the devil's demonic horde. But in the context, they looked, his horde that is, like a lot of just good missionary boys. They didn't look devilish. They didn't look demonic. They didn't have horns growing out of their foreheads. They came in, oh, because we have the further truth, the greater evidence. We have more that Paul didn't really share. You need to get grounded in the religion behind this. And Sunday we talked about what that was. It was Judaism. And it was Jewish Christians trying to force circumcision and the law on Gentile Christians. And Paul really goes after it in the book of Galatians, the letter that he writes to the Galatian churches. Don't be fooled by the facade. Because people still are today in the church. By people in the church who are legalistic, who are self-righteous, and who are telling you you're not doing enough. That's what was going on at Corinth. 
And Paul refers to them as not as servants of righteousness, but as those who disguise themselves, just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Jesus, in the kingdom parables, Matthew 13, he described, that, described them as tares in the wheat, making it very clear that there will be weeds in the church until the consummation of all things. That there will be false teachers in and among you. There will be moving in and throughout the church. Leaven in the dough. Birds in the branches. He makes the point that while the church will grow remarkably over these 2,000 years, that within some things are going to grow up and you need to be sharp. You need to have your wits about you. You need to be discerning. I love how Jude describes this. And again, it is graphic in explanation. But the little letter of Jude, verse 10, he says, These men revile the things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Instinct is just human nature, folks. It's what people do naturally. It's how we react and respond naturally. And we are not to be that way. He says, woe to them. This is Jude verse 11. For they have gone the way of Cain. And note this, for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear caring for themselves. They're going to shipwreck your communion services. Says these are clouds without water. In other words, they promise big things, but there's nothing to them. Carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit. How disappointing is that? Cheryl and I had an apple tree behind a house we rented back in uh, Tacoma years and years ago, back in 1989. Big, honking, huge, old, naughty apple tree, and it produced nothing. Big disappointment for a city kid from California. He said, these guys are also, they're doubly dead, uprooted. They're wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame-like foam. They're wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. That's the facade of righteousness. That fits in very well, I believe, with Paul's description of these wolves in sheep's clothing, these super apostles, these false, uh, self-satisfied guys who are disguising themselves as services, as servants of righteousness. And the facade of righteousness is just that. It's a front. There is a phoniness there. And sometimes it's awfully convincing. Again, you, you get someone coming along who... Boy, they're, they're a little legalistic, but boy, they're fascinating to listen to. You know? I really, they say a lot of good things. Probably do. Probably have a lot of truth mixed in with the lies. Be careful of this. It's a mask. And the enemy is very good at wearing masks. He knows how to disguise himself, Paul says, as an angel of light. Well, how does Satan know how to do that? Isaiah 14, verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. In the Hebrew, that's Hillel ben Shakar. In Latin, it's Lucifer, light bearer. His name as a cherub, a guardian cherub, Ezekiel talks about in Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, both dealing with Satan, this, this supposed angel of light, and he, based on the description, was brilliant. 
was an exalted guardian cherub until he decided to exalt himself. You who have been, Isaiah 14 verse 12, cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. My point is simply this. Satan knows how to put on light. He knows how to hang little Christmas lights all over himself to twinkle and glimmer and glow and look like something special. And Paul is saying false teachers do the same thing. They are servants of Him. And they will bring that same kind of uh, light show to impress. And it's stunning to me that Paul refers to these super apostles as literally servants of the adversary. So this is serious, serious business. Well, back in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16, he says, Again I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do receive me even as foolish, but if you do receive me even as foolish, so that I may boast a little. I love it. Don't look at me as foolish. But if you're going to, well, let me be foolish a little longer. Let me boast a little. Let me get a little crazy here. What I am saying, verse 17, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. In other words, if you want to call me foolish, fine. Let me speak foolishly for a moment. This is what I would call part three, the flesh of boasting. The flesh of boasting. Verse 19, he says... For you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. Wow. Paul's still talking to Corinth, but these super apostles are hearing this read as they're being called out. He paints a graphic five-point picture of these servants of the adversary. And it's instructive for us what they do. Not only how they look, they disguise themselves as angels of light, but here's what they do. And it's important for discernment, to be discerning followers of Jesus today. They, first of all, he says, they enslave. That's in verse 20. They enslave. Secondly, they eat. They're going to eat you up. They will devour you. Uh, Thirdly, they take advantage. That is, they exploit. They always have a purpose other than the building up of the body of Christ. They have a purpose for themselves. And maybe it is a pastor who comes along and is just tucking away, you know, a reserve for himself until he can launch somewhere else and leave the people in the dust. But they are exploitive. It says they exalt themselves. So all four of those things are obvious. They enslave, they eat, they exploit, they exalt themselves. And the fifth point, I find the most interesting, and they hit you in the face. What exactly does that mean? I would call that egregious embarrassment. They embarrass. They put you down. 
In fact, they do it in such a way that you kind of accept it. Oh, yeah, yeah I am. I am. Well, no, I'm not as good as you are. And they, they're overbearing. The false apostle always gives himself wholly to the flesh. And interestingly, in all these things, enslaving, eating, exploiting, exalting, they hit you in the face. Isn't that just like sin? That it moves from subtlety to, to brazenness. You know? It's like, uh, just give sin an inch and it'll explode all over you. And that's what they do, these false teachers. They start out subtle, but the more they go, the more brazen and bold and brash until they are just beating you up with false teaching. It's possible here, with this hit-you-in-the-face comment, that Paul is referring to actual incidents taking place at Corinth in which these false apostles literally hauled off and whacked people. I know you can't imagine that happening in the church, but it did in Puritan churches early on in our country. People who would walk up and down the aisles, and if you were nodding off, they'd take a stick and whack you in the head. Oh, thank you, I'm awake now. We had a great discussion in our recent shepherds meeting about how to employ that here at the bridge. (laughs) Hitting you in the face. No, this was actually... A rabbinical practice in some areas, not good rabbis, but there were some rabbis who employed as a teaching method slaps to the face. Asking a disciple a question, and the disciple got it wrong? Try again. The disciple would answer again. Try again. Slapping in the face to try and bring them to the point of, of knowledge or understanding. Perhaps these super apostles, these Judaizers, were employing this method. But in the context of what Paul's saying of enslaving and devouring and taking advantage and exalting and hitting, all of it is for one purpose, and that is intimidation. And a false teacher is intimidating. It's coercion. It's it's trying to keep the truth down, and so they hit. And the word here in the Greek for hit is dero, D-E-R-O, And it literally means to beat, to smite, to strike, or to flog. I read that and it reminded me of the time when the dearest and best face of all was beaten and hit. Luke 22.63 says the men were holding Jesus in custody and they were mocking Him and they were beating Him, Darrow, slapping Him, hitting Him in the face. And they blindfolded Him and were asking Him, saying, Prophesy! Who's the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him and blaspheming. Now get this in context. That was happening according to Luke in the courtyard before they even came in to see the high priest. Okay, Whether it was Roman soldiers or other people doing it, they were slapping him in the face while waiting to come in and see the high priest. Well, they took him inside... He had already now been derrowed, hit in the face many times, and he began to honestly answer the high priest when suddenly John 18.22 says one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered and said to him, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you derrow me? Why do you strike me? So interesting. While the false teachers are striking people, intimidating people, coercing people to follow them, Jesus is taking the hits 
And it's amazing how he responds. So completely different. They couldn't intimidate Jesus. A false teacher never can. The false apostles who strike and punch and beat are always exposed, they always overplay their hand, they always go violent one way or another. And they are, understand, the very antithesis of Jesus Christ. He is completely different. In fact, Isaiah would prophesy this about him. Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. Isn't that exactly what the super apostles were doing? Making themselves heard. Striking people to get them to follow. But the Lord says through Isaiah about Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. That's the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And even in calling out what these false apostles do, there's a picture here, uh, uh, contrary to it, of Jesus Himself. And so Paul says in verse 21, To my shame I must say that we have been weak by comparison. You see, the spiritual can appear weak by comparison in the world. I think some of you know what I mean. Simply by bringing the gentleness and the meekness and humility of the message of Jesus, you're called foolish. And compared to the world, not very tough. Oh, you're one of those namby-pamby Christians. I learned that's a that's a Glenn word. Those of you in his Bible study apparently hear this. Don't give me a namby-pamby. I like that. No, sometimes we can be seen that way. Paul says, I get it. You know, I've come off as weak. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Okay, you may be bold. This is so stupid that I'm even talking this way. I am bold, he says. I'm just as bold as you are. And now we come to the fool's speech proper. Paul's boast is spiritually potent. So this is number four, the fool's speech. Now I'm going to divide it into two parts as we go through it. And first is the boast of tribulation. As Paul full on begins to boast of himself. He says in verse 22, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants or the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Okay, I speak as if insane. I more so. You know what the word more so is there? Huperleon. Same word that he uses to, to describe the false apostles, the super apostles. Are they servants of Christ? I am super servant. See how foolish it is? And he goes, this is insane, but I'm, I'm, I've got to say this to you guys. If you think that you're great because you're a Hebrew, an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, the real question is, are you a servant of Christ? And insanely, Paul says, I more so. And then he goes on to describe that. Now, before we get there, remember, Paul loved Israel. You will not find in the Scriptures... Paul, 
or the other apostles denigrating the Jewish people. That's not what he's doing here. It's not the Jewish people, his brethren that he has a problem with. It's these false teachers who are coming in and stirring up trouble at Corinth. But Paul loves Israel, always would, as those, he said in Romans 9.4, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, whose overall God bless forever. Amen. And many Jews in those early years, Paul is one of them, truly came to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. But some didn't come far enough. And again, I'm talking about these false apostles. They didn't come far enough. What do you mean? These false apostles, these Judaizing ilk, imposed a religion of Jesus and. So they hadn't fully left the traditions and the law and the requirements and the weight of religion. They hadn't left that behind. They hadn't come far enough in their understanding of grace. And that was a problem. And so Paul says, look, you can be all of these things. Hebrew and Israelite and descendant of Abraham, fantastic. The question is, are you a servant of Christ? And I am super servant. (laughs) Understand that any religion that is Jesus and, and you can fill in the blank, Jesus and anything is a false religion. It's Jesus only. It's Jesus who is everything. Jesus and the law, false religion. Jesus and human effort, false religion. Jesus and self-righteousness, false religion. Because in every case, Jesus and denies the free gift of grace. Which again is what Paul is trying to teach here. Grace comes freely received, freely given. But now, he says, he explains what it means to be a super servant of Christ. Here's what it looks like, in case you were wondering. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. You know the flogging of Jesus? Paul went through it five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, and that's not because he lived in Washington State. (laughs) Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, of whom he is referring. I've been in labor and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Man, that's the list. Oh, and by the way, based on the timing of this, it was after this that Paul's life got really tough. (laughs) That description there isn't the half of it. From here, he would end up back in Jerusalem, ultimately. He would end up almost mauled to death by the people, thrown into prison in Caesarea, hauled off to Rome. He would be imprisoned and beaten he would face worse than what he just described here as a super servant of Christ. 
But all these are credentials of his boast of tribulation, which is why this is such a foolish boast, because what he's boasting of is terrible. Let me tell you what a fantastic day I had. I woke up this morning and I got beat up on the way to school. I mean, you could... It's just foolish, but that's what Paul is describing here. A track record of pain and struggle and hardship and adversity. Why are you getting into this, Paul? It's all serving to prove one thing, and that is, in spite of it all, the endurance of the Gospel. It just endures. And because of the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul continues to endure. I mean, who would put up with this? At what point would you say, I'm out. I resign, Lord. Cheryl and I have a running joke about me becoming a UPS driver when things get really hard. (laughs) Just deliver packages, drop them off, have a nice day, ma'am, and I'm on my way. Now, I wouldn't want to be a UPS driver this time of year. They showed up at like 9 o'clock last night. But who would put up with this? What's, What's your line in the sand? How much pain is too much pain? How much tribulation is too much tribulation? At what point do you say, Lord, I've had enough and I'm not going to serve anymore? Paul is describing a horrific life and in it the endurance of the Gospel. He said back in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Hey, Paul got this. He understood endurance. And because he persevered for the Gospel, while he had many tribulations, he would not go into the tribulation. Note this, Revelation 3.10, Jesus said, because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Persevere. Hang in there. Tough it out. Why? Because the gospel is worth it. The gospel is always worth it. Hang in there. Paul says those struggles, all that pain, all that difficulty, you know what, honestly? They're beside the point. And then he gets to the point. Apart from such external things, aside from that, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Or literally the word there is indignation. You ever get ticked off when you see someone sinning? I don't mean at them. I mean at the sin. You ever just get mad at Satan when you see a friend or a family member wandering off in some kind of sin lifestyle and you just, man, I'm I'm indignant about this. There is a righteous indignation where sin is involved. Especially when it causes you to cry out on behalf of that person to intercede in prayer for them and to bring the gospel more often to their cause. Paul says, I... I'm indignant when I see this kind of stuff going on. And for Paul, it's remarkable to me that the heavier hardship is his concern for the church. All these little tribulations, yeah, they're a pain. But man, what's going on in the church? What's happening with Corinth? Can you imagine now, after reading through some of this, how heavy these false apostles sat on Paul as he knew he had other places he had to go and preach and be, and yet he knew what was happening in Corinth and he is praying constantly for them. 
that the false apostles would not get a foothold. Man, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, where the false apostles were involved, Paul could have just written Corinth off. I mean, you know, as a human being, he had that option. He could have just said, I'm done with Corinth. All they do is cause me a pain in the neck anyway. They can have their false apostles and they can go their own way. I'm just going to take care of Ephesus. They love me there. (laughs) And yet Paul continues to press on. He held on. As he said in 1 Corinthians 4.15, If you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the Gospel. And guess what? Dads don't give up on their daughters. Not where Christ is concerned. He says in verse 30, If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. And you realize that's what he just did. I'm a super servant. Oh, really, Paul? Tell us how super you are. Well, I've been beaten up and trashed and thrashed and thrown about and I've had a horrible life. It's been really hard and I worry constantly and pray fervently for all the churches because I'm so weak. That's boasting? In a fool's speech, yes, it is. He says, verse 31, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. Love the phrase. The God and Father who is blessed forever. That's a wonderfully Jewish thing to say. That is a typical beginning to many Jewish blessings and Jewish prayers. But he claims it, he uses it to say, man, foolish or not, everything I'm saying to you before God is absolutely true. I'm going to boast about what pertains to my weakness. By the way, what was that? What truly was Paul's Weakness, I would submit to you that it's His love. He loves them. He just loves Corinth. I was done with Corinth by about chapter 3. He loves them and it's a weakness. Like that old 50's song, Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Paul just does. You know that song, by the way, is number 314 out of the 500 top rock and roll songs ever written? According to Rolling Stone magazine. See, I told you, I tell you important things from time to time that you just need to dismiss. Why does Paul love cantankerous Corinth so much? 2 Corinthians 5.14 For the love of Christ controls us. I have to love Him. Why, Paul? Because Christ loved me. And when I think about that, I, I ask the question of myself and I ask it to all of us tonight. Is there anyone in the church you're having trouble loving? Let the love of Christ control you. Don't look at the person who's annoying you or causing you consternation. You look at Jesus, consider how He loves you, and then you return that same love to the annoying person. Verse 32. Paul says, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aretas the king, and we can place that in history, by the way. Aretas was a Nabataean or an Arabian king. He was guarding the city of the Damascenes in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in a wall, and so escaped his hands. Now, now we've heard this story. If you've read the book of Acts, you're familiar with it and and how it took place. After Paul encountered Jesus 
on the road to Damascus and had that life-changing experience. He's born again there in Damascus. And in Galatians, he tells us then after some time he left for Arabia before returning to Damascus. And that whole story is confirmed then that while in Damascus there's a problem and he has to be let down through a, a window on the city wall and therefore escape. But the question I would ask is why is Paul tacking it on here? It seems out of place. I mean, I would have taken verses 32 and 33 and I would have tucked them somewhere in under, oh, let's see, in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. I was even let down out of the city wall in a basket, man. I mean, that's where I would have put it. Put the story in with all the other pains and stuff. But he shifts from the pain. He goes to his concern for the churches. He boasts about his weakness, his love for them. He says, I'm not lying. And then he tacks on this little story. Which again, for any reader as you're reading through it, it just kind of hits you as a little bit out of place. Why is it here? Well, I'll give you two reasons before we're done tonight. First of all, this may very well have been Paul's deepest ministry heartbreak. That of all the things he listed, this one, being let down in a basket through a window in the city wall of Damascus, was more heartbreaking to Paul than anything that would happen after that. Why would you say that? Because it was Jews who sought to kill him. Listen to this. This is Acts chapter 9. In fact, if you'd like to flip over there just for a moment, Acts chapter 9, verse 22. Luke is writing, and he says, But Saul, that is Paul, kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When many days had elapsed, The Jews plotted together to do away with him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. What that tells us is the Jews of the city of Damascus were in league with Aretas, or at least with the ethnarch of Damascus, who was put in by an Arabian king. So curious bedfellows there, but they both partnered in the same hatred for the cause of Christ. And the same hatred here for Paul. But, verse 25, his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Talk about a letdown. (laughs) Paul was let down by his own people. Hear that again. He's let down. He's disappointed. He's discouraged by his own people. Paul was a Jew among Jews. He had been converted. He saw the light. He understood the truth. He realized the Messiah. And nothing meant more to Paul than bringing the truth of Messiah to his own people. But wait a minute. Who was he called to as an apostle? If you look back at verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And I would say in that order. 
that Paul's calling, though he was a Jew among Jews, a Hebrew among Hebrews, an Israelite among Israelites, his calling was going to be first and foremost to the Gentiles. And it takes Paul a long time to get there. He doesn't instantly jump on it. In fact, isn't it interesting that in the story we just read, the people that he's trying to convince that this is the Christ were Jews. But he's called to the Gentiles. But he's going to the Jews. And so as he's being let down out of that window, and again referencing it there at the end of first, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, as they're letting him down, he's just he's ashamed. He feels like he's scurrying away like a rat at night. And his own people are against him, and this is not what he thought it was going to be. So what did Paul do? Well, from there, and you can turn back to 2 Corinthians, from there Paul would go to the population center of the Gentile world. Jerusalem. Amazing. Paul, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Where does he go? Jerusalem. (laughs) At least... There in Jerusalem, he began to have conversations with Hellenistic Jews. Okay, Greek Jews, culturally Greek Jews. But in Jerusalem, another plot was formed against him, a plot to kill him. And so the brothers sent him from there home to Tarsus. We studied this when we went through Acts. Paul would spend, after Damascus, Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem, he would go from Jerusalem back north to Tarsus where he would bump around for about the next seven years. After his calling, we have zero record of Paul's work, his mission work, his preaching, his ministry in Tarsus. I don't really even know what he was doing. Was he making tents? You know, I don't know. We have no idea. Until Barnabas goes to Antioch and sees things are buzzing there. By the way, Antioch is a place with lots of Gentiles. And Barnabas is there, and the Lord puts on his heart, Gotta get Paul. I gotta get Paul in on this. And he goes from Antioch up and around to Tarsus, picks up Paul, brings him back to Antioch, Gentileville, and in Acts chapter 10 verse 26 it says for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch and now Paul's on his way. But I tell you that little story of Paul's life to say that as Paul places it here at the end of chapter 11 that he was let down out of the city in that basket, it was a great disappointment to him. Have you ever been there? You know, in that place of things not turning out the way you thought they should or the way you thought they would? Well, Paul was there. I can relate slightly, although my life does not parallel Paul's. I was called as a 16-year-old. I knew God called me to ministry. You know when I actually started youth ministry? I started as a 24-year-old. And in between, I went to get a degree in psychology because I'm not going to do that ministry stuff. But I knew I was called. And oftentimes, God will call a person and then life just seems to get in the way. And we find ourselves tossed about and seven years may go by or in David's case, ten years. Or how about Moses? Forty years. 
until he stunk to high heaven like all the sheep he was taking care of before God says, now you're ready, go back, let's get this going. And that was the case with Paul. So through all of this foolish talk, he's relating to the people at Corinth, again with foolish words, what it means to be one who is truly a servant of Christ. It means even the things that you think should happen in your life may not happen, and you're going to be disappointed. So what do you do? You give up? You go back to Tarsus? You sow tents for a living and let the rest fall? Maybe you need to hear the voice of Barnabas here tonight saying, Come on, there's ministry yet to be done. And if you are living and breathing, you still have ministry to do. You still have a calling on your life, and Paul understood that. But but listen, there is one more reason, I think. Paul puts this story right here in this letter, in 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33. And it's brilliant. In the midst of the foolish speech, he talks first about being lowered down before he talks about being caught up. Watch this. For all the endurance of the gospel, even the depth of Christ's love in Paul, something came by revelation. Paul knew something because he had seen it. He could boast of tribulation because of the boast of revelation. Chapter 12, verse 1, quickly. I'm just going to kind of punch into this a little bit. Boasting is necessary, he says though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Yes, that word is harpazo, raptured. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Now, he first says he's caught up. This man that I know, it's Paul, is caught up to the third heaven. Suddenly Paul converts to Mormonism. No, no. What he's saying in this third heaven is the Jews understood three. Three heavens to Jewish thinking, the atmosphere, and then outer space, and then God's place. Paul was caught up to the throne room of God. He, or at least he's saying, I know a man who was 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I'm not really sure how it exactly happened, but Paul got revelation. Paul had an amazing visionary experience, and this is the boast of revelation. He's talking about himself, but... Foolishly, weirdly, he distances himself from himself. Starts referring to himself as, I know a man, as this other guy. Why? Listen, Paul really doesn't want to talk about this. He doesn't want to share. Well, how do you know that? Because it happened 14 years before and this is the first time he has ever said anything about it. This is very personal to Paul. And... As part of this revelation, he's told you're not allowed to talk about this. Which Rachel and I were laughing about this today. I heard inexpressible things which are not, a man is not permitted to speak. It's literally, it's unlawful for me to speak. Well then why are you telling us, Paul? 
You know, someone comes along and goes, I've got a secret. Don't tell me you've got a secret unless you're going to tell me the secret. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here. Man, I was caught up and this amazing thing happened. Well, I I know a man who was. Why is he talking about this? Because he has to. He absolutely has to. I'll tell you why in just a sec. Some connect this rapturous vision to Paul. They connect it to his stoning at Lystra. Um, Acts chapter 14. At Lystra, he was stoned. You remember the story? They stoned him and dragged him outside the city dead. Or at least they supposed him, Luke writes. They supposed that he was dead. And they throw him down outside. And all his disciples gather around him. No doubt they're weeping. Paul's gone. We've lost him. He's dead. And then Paul gets up, dusts himself off and says, Hey, let's go back into Lystra and preach the word. <laughs> and in he goes. And there are those who say, Yeah, that, that, that was here. Here's the problem. The timing's not right. Because Paul was at Lystra just four or five years prior to the writing of this letter. And he says, I know, man, it was 14 years ago this happened. 14 years. This is way back. This is early on. In fact, it's more likely that it happened sometime during the seven years in Tarsus when nothing else was going on. When Paul perhaps was discouraged, demoralized, and just back in his hometown because what else am I going to do? That that may have been the actual place 14 years prior this man was caught up. Let me read verse 3 and 4 again. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise. And that word paradise is explanatory. It's beautiful. Paradiso in the Greek. Or paradisos. It, it means literally, the Persians used it to describe an enclosed orchard, garden, or forest. A beautifully enclosed place. Safe, protected. Man, compare that word paradise when you have time, maybe this week, to the description in Revelation 21 and 22 of the new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Surrounded by a wall, new Jerusalem. And new Jerusalem in that description is breathtaking. Paul's vision, I would submit, is similar. He was caught up and he saw this Paradisos, this beautiful walled orchard, garden, this, this amazing thing. And again, he said what he heard is inexpressible, unlawful to speak. Paul didn't write a book about it. This is all you get right here. He didn't go on a speaking tour and make a movie about his near death experience. Again, for 14 years, he said nothing about this event. So why mention it now? I told you he had to. Why? Daughter Corinth had been rolling her eyes at Dad. And in verse 5, Paul says, On behalf of such a man, I will boast. That is someone who had that experience. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For I do not wish... For for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain 
so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. In other words, if I'm going to claim something publicly as a servant of Jesus Christ, remember, he's a super servant. If I'm going to do that, I will claim my weaknesses, not my glories. Only my weaknesses. For as glorious and motivational as this revelation must have been for Paul, it was not his own glory that got him caught up. And it was not his own glory or to his own glory that he experienced that revelation. And those who take revelations and repeat them to their own glory are not servants of Christ. They are servants of self. Then why mention it at all, Paul? I mean, why, why kind of mention it, but then pull back from it? Why even bring it up? He has to. Because he has to set up one more weakness. Verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. That is the reason of a fool for Jesus. That's how a fool for Christ thinks. In the endurance of the Gospel, loving people, the servant of Christ understands that we must be lowered down before we are caught up. We must be humble before we are exalted at the proper time. And by God, not by ourselves. And Paul says this, this is the whole point of being a servant of Jesus Christ, a bondservant of Jesus, is we are here to get low. We are to be lowered down. That's, that's our lot in life. I know, it's not a lot, but it's our life. That is the point. That here and now, we get as low as possible for the sake of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, even to being fools, because, because Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Because the promise is that we will be caught up. Like Paul. We will be raptured. We will come to that paradisos. That place prepared. It will be marvelous and wonderful and glorious. All the glory going to God. But not now. Not today. Not in this life. We are not called to seek these things. Jesus said in Matthew 23.12, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But what is this messenger of Satan in verse 7? We're going to talk about that Sunday morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, wow. What an amazing speech. And all I can think of, Lord, is, oh, to be a fool like Paul. To be a fool who boasts in weaknesses and beatings and tribulations and hardships because that's the servant of Christ. Not like the false teacher who elevates himself. Father, it's a frightening thing, honestly, for us to pray humble us. Because Paul's just described what it took to humble him. But Lord, I would say to you tonight, 
Maybe not even knowing what I'm saying. Maybe in foolishness I would say, do what you must to humble us that you would be exalted. Teach us, Father, not to think highly of ourselves, but to speak highly of Jesus. Help us, Lord, to have that simple, devoted trust in You. To live lives of purity, not because it looks so good on us, but because it declares who You are in us. Lower us down so that, Father, at the right time, You can catch us up. Thank You for Your Word to us tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you.